Hello, and welcome to Lots of Familiar, the show that remembers that when Matt Bianco did sneaking out the back door on Checkers Plays Pop, the performance kept cutting to comedy sketch bits of them actually sneaking out of a back door for no obvious reason. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seemed to, with a bit of a disco sci-fi twist, is writer Johnny Morris. Johnny, what are you up to and where can we find it? What I'm up to is promoting a new audio sitcom I've written, a disco sci-fi sitcom called Dick Dixon in the 21st Century. It's got a Kickstarter and we're just trying to take pre-orders for two more episodes. It's on YouTube, it's on Spotify, it's on all the streaming services. Listen to it, check it out. I should mention it as music by Dale McLean. It's directed and co-stars Toby Hadok and Kieran Hodgson, who people all know from Two Doors Down, but he's also, he's done these viral videos on Twitter where he plays all the different characters. Wonderful comedian called Alison June Smith in it. Terry Malloy, who people know from Doctor Who is Davos, and Dan Starkey, who people know as Strax, and Suze Kempner, who's another sort of internet sensation who does these incredibly funny videos. There's all these sort of people who are sort of hot right now, who are sort of up and coming, and I'm sort of very keen to sort of capitalise that, but also, you know, to give them another push. Okay, well, just before we go on to your first choice, just so people know exactly what we're talking about, I'm not going to ask you for the story behind disco sci-fi itself, because as far as I know, you weren't at Studio 54, but what's the story behind your love of disco sci-fi? I should say disco sci-fi is a particular form of science fiction. You know, it's a science fiction which sort of begins around 1975 and ends around 1982-ish. It's from the age of disco, and it's a particular type of um, optimistic futurism, where for some reason, everyone is convinced that the future of the human race <laughs> looks like a 1970s discotheque, basically. So that all the fashions um, in 1977 will somehow definitely be round in 100 or 200 years time. The best example is Buck Rogers, but it's also in things like Battlestar Galactica and Logan's Run and all those shows. The sort of great period where science fiction is a positive form of um, escapism. The future's going to be great. Okay, well, your first choice is about as disco sci-fi as it gets, I mean, literally, but the clip I'm going to use is from something that wasn't really that optimistic and somebody tried to shoehorn it into the disco sci-fi mould. sounds a bit like the theme from Space 1999 but a bit more jolly so Johnny what's that from? That's from a, a cassette I had in the early 80s called Galaxy Gold now people might be aware of Jeff Love of course who did his sort of disco versions of science fiction films and stuff this is by Neil Norman and his Cosmic Orchestra so if you think Jeff Love is a sort of doing a cheap knockoff versions of science fiction films Neil Norman and his Cosmic Orchestra are doing cheap knockoffs of Jeff Love he's taken songs which are already done as a sort of disco version versions and made them even more disco and also he's taken tracks which i don't which i'm not sure jeff love did like i think called can you read my mind the love theme from superman and did his own sort of funky disco versions of that the wonderful thing about this in a way is that this was done i think this is 1981-ish 1982 so this is already at the point where this type of music is incredibly unfashionable yeah. <laughs> this is you know this is the guy turning up at the disco in 1982 in his john travolta outfit and everyone's going what? We, we all like Duran Duran and the Human League now. What are you doing? 
but my memory of this is I'd be sitting uh, sitting at my BBC micro. I go, I need to get a sort of a spacey atmosphere. I'd put on my Galaxy Gold tape, and it would just have these wonderful, highly energized, high energy disco versions of science fiction films. And I was in the place. I was in space. I was in the science fiction adventure. Listening to it today, I go, I'm not sure it's good music, but it's. <laughs> I mean, there's a version of Star Wars where I think something is going very wrong with the time signature. I think he's trying to shoehorn things together which don't fit at all. But God, it makes me smile. The line between musical genius and musical insanity is a very narrow line and i think neil norman and his cosmic orchestra straddled that line well i did some research into because i had no idea who neil norman was i mean i was aware of this album i pictured him as like kind of an aging band leader a bit like jeff love and there were a couple of volumes of this as well because galaxy gold was originally released in america it was on prt records over here it was on gmp crescendo which is quite a big hip label in the 60s it had bands like the seeds on. obviously by 1980 81 they were putting stuff like this out it was called greater science fiction hits and like i say, there are a couple of volumes of it. there's volume two that's a doctor who theme voice at the bottom of the sea music from dark star bizarrely which <laughs> is a bit of a stretch but it turned out he was the very young son of the owner of the label gene norman who basically just said dad i've got into this synth music because of sci-fi films can i make some albums for your label <laughs> and he did and i think galaxy gold must have sold a lot of copies over here because it was quite a common sight in second-hand shops and i remember getting hold of it when i was first starting to get into kind of like charity shop find records what later became lounge core stuff and i remember putting tracks from it at the end of c90s i did for people and they all went mad with the battlestar galactica theme that was a really weird one you know just put them on unlisted i think people at the time just bought it because it was sci-fi and they liked sci-fi but it's since become much more of a cult item really his cv is just science fiction covers album he isn't sort of branched out and gone i'll do soap opera themes or westerns <laughs> it's just going nope there's no robots i'm not interested i can appreciate that i think that is exactly my sort of ideal musical career but the other thing is on galaxy gold is it has i think three or four tracks which aren't themes where it's his own compositions they're kind of like a sort of omd or you know the french band air they, they sort of sort of synth funk workouts the sort of stuff you would get on the b side of radiophonic workshop singles those tracks are particularly sort of interesting and weird i think because this is someone who's i don't know if he had musical training or anything or is he just sort of a sort of a joe meek figure who sort of had musical ideas but had no understanding of music i think they're worth seeking out particularly the original tracks are ahead of his time i think well the most interesting track on galaxy gold for non-musical reasons is the inclusion of the theme from the black hole which first of all he must have recorded that not very long after he saw it that was a very short-lived sensation it was a very short window of time you would have covered the music from the black hole in because that was forgotten for a long time that is a really really kind of that really time stamps the album i think it does because i remember the black hole as being a film i never got to see but i got the i had the black hole annual which makes a big thing of the little sort of the the floating bins of the robots with the big cartoon eyes <laughs> which in the annual have a much more significant part of the story and in the film they're sort of weirdly sort of shoehorned in i think it must have bombed at the cinema or something because it was big build-up trailers excitement adverts in comics and stuff and then nothing i lived in taunton and sometimes these films didn't even get as far as taunton well i was going to bring in another album i had which was again it was a cassette i think i got this in about 1987 and it's a compilation of tracks on some earlier albums by who else jeff love called an hour of super themes where it had some amazing stuff on it it's an incredible version of barbarella where i later tracked down the original album that was on and when i used to dj sort of the height of the Britpop pop era i used to use that as chucking out music sometimes it's a good version of one 
Wonder Woman, the Incredible Hulk theme. There's the the 70s Spider-Man. Maybe the only time anyone covered the theme from that, you know, the Nicholas Hammond series. I don't imagine there were many covers of that floating around, but there's some appalling ones on it. Like, there's a dreadful kind of almost military two-step Blake 7. There's the disco version of Close Encounters. There's kind of a shopping centre tannoy version of Thunderbirds. And the worst thing on it, and the reason I bought this tape in the first place was, you know, you forget how hard it was to find actual TV themes in those days. And it said it had a UFO on it. And I love the UFO music. It was one of the first things that I tried to get from a broadcast into decent quality on the tape. Never quite succeeded. And I thought, brilliant. It's some orchestra. Yeah, but they're doing the UFO theme. I'll get it. It's a slow paced, dramatic version. It just wasn't what I wanted at all. And I came to really, really resent the tape for a long time because of that. (laughs) I mean, obviously, it later came around to its joys. That's an interesting thing about with albums like this, you would get a couple of tracks that you really liked and some others that you felt a bit cheated by because there was such a disappointment compared to the TV theme or the movie theme that you really loved. Jeff Loves felt a bit like the, you know, the 1970s Top of the Pops Orchestra. Yes. Where there's there's a guy playing the cymbals who's got a fag on the go at the same time going, yeah, whatever. They're sort of going through the motions. And also, I think in terms of arrangements, Jeff Love was a sort of a law unto himself that he would just take the tune and just sometimes take it in a completely different direction. I speak highly of his version of the Blake 7 theme because he adds an extra middle eight, which is like a sort of a funky sort of synth harpsichord thing. All these things sort of, they capture something because they're not quite the theme you want. So you're, there's a sort of a, a liminal space, as it were, between you and the music. There's this other sort of thing, that's, which at the time is very frustrating because you go, I want the one on television. But now, you know, this is this is extra value. Well, I think these tracks are really, really overdue rediscovery because, you know, like you say, on albums like this, sort of the, well, literal disco sci-fi albums, you would get, you know, like we said, one or two tracks really worth rescuing from there. And at the same time as these were going on, you got all these amazing actual disco sci-fi records, like I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper, Clouds Across the Moon, Spacer, all kinds of things like that. I'll just say it, the disco version of the Doctor Who theme. Now, if somebody was doing the compilation, you know, you could have run out of actual proper legit chart disco tracks after a while so put some of these on and you've got a brilliant compilation i think that's if anyone listening runs a record label and wants to get us <laughs> in to compile that just give me a shout we'd be more than happy to i think these actually all, they do fit in with the musical scene a bit because you have things like i feel love by donna summer and all the other Giorgio Moroda stuff sparks number one in heaven and so on they're all in a similar sort of vein synthesizers and a particular sort of bright synthesizer Sound, usually with live drums and maybe a live bass so it's got a sort of that funky disco feel as well that's very much in the same vein as what neil norman and jeff love were doing it's not that far away from what was in the charts and of course mankind did get in the charts with their version of doctor who which again has a wonderful sort of they had their own extra little instrumental break oh the henry's cut theme as i call it yeah it has an extra bit that goes up which is just sort of really really exciting in a sort of uh in a disco what, what's exciting in a disco because what's exciting in a disco is just just when you know something good is about to happen and then it happens. Maybe that's what's exciting in every sphere of life. But in, in, a, in a disco, you sort of you dance extra hard at that bit. You know, you, you get and then you punch the air when the thing that you knew was going to happen happens. Well, I still live in hope that one day we'll find evidence that somebody was sufficiently inspired by the disco version of Doctor Who to go down to the local night spot dressed as a tar and wood beast. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually sticking with Neil Norman for the clip for your next choice, because I, having mentioned it already, couldn't get away without playing this. So here we go. Thank you. 
Okay, that's Neil Norman and the Cosmic Orchestra taking up the Battlestar Galactica, which I've already mentioned. They used to put at the end of compilation tapes for people. Johnny, why have I put that there? The reason you put that there is not because I was a big fan of Battlestar Galactica back in the day. This is what it's like when you have action figures from shows you haven't seen. Because I had this sort of weird sort of orange robot dog with black eyes, this sort of articulated limbs. And for you, I was just going, what is this? Is this a bootleg Star Wars figure? I mean, did they do bootleg Star Wars figures? Because certainly by about 1982-ish, you look at the Star Wars catalogue and you go, I don't remember any of these guys being in the film. There's a bit in Empire Strikes Back where it pans across all the bounty hunters and you go, you have literally only put him in this film. So you can say, sorry, literally, <laughs> he's only in that shot. He does nothing in the film. And then in Return of the Jedi, it goes down below decks on the desert yacht and it's like these are only people we're going to be seeing once we're going to, well, no, they're not proper characters you know they're not proper characters they're just here to sell the toys so yeah I had the Daggett and it's part of a whole sort of interesting feeling I think what it's like when you know there are shows you haven't seen so like I say, like the Black Hole Annual, I'd read that. I'd never seen the film, you know, not even a clip of it, but I knew of it. And with Battlestar Galactica, I, I, I had the little Daggett figure, which I eventually worked out was from Battlestar Galactica, because Lookin had a Battlestar Galactica comic strip, which I followed avidly, but never saw an episode. Never saw the thing because it was on ITV and I wasn't, I was far too middle class to watch ITV. So yeah, it's the whole thing of eventually it becomes an itch to scratch. And so during lockdown, I went, I have to go back and finally watch these programs. I have to, for the sake of my, you know, eight year old self, I have to find out what all these things that I really yearned to see, but never got to see whether they were any good or not and try to sort of put myself in the mental place where I would enjoy it as a kid. But it's very hard to do that when you're watching it and it has Erin Gray in it as Wilma and you just sort of going i can't really imagine watching this as a seven-year-old because i'm too distracted also what it is is it's a science fiction show when you're sort of viewing it from the outside so you can sort of just you don't quite know what it's all about you just sort of, so you imagine it you make up your own stories your own sort of world i mean because everything's accessible now it's very hard not to watch something well i was thinking when i was preparing for this about how odd it is that i mean i remember watching Battlestar galactica i don't remember it that clearly but i remember enough about it i now knew what the cylons were when and one turned up in the opening titles of the A-Team and things like that. But when I think of how much Battlestar Galactica merchandise I had, including some of the figures, that was actually, it was mine. It wasn't handed down from elder siblings, like, you know, things like that often were. This is stuff I remember being given, because just thinking about it, I had, there was a toy, Colonial Viper and Cylon Raider, which weren't very big, but they had a little Cylon and a little Viper pilot that you could take out with tiny movable limbs. That was really exciting. I had a jigsaw, I had several books. I also had the Daggett figure, which I remember clearly asking for because I loved Muffet the Daggett because, you know, I was that age. <laughs> but I also later, this is why I think me and probably a lot of people by age ended up with so much Battlestar Galactica stuff was it never really took off as a series. I think it was cancelled and then brought back and that sort of deal. And probably all this stuff, particularly in the UK, was remained really quickly because I'm fairly certain the other two figures that I had, which were the Imperious Leader and Lucifer, I think I got them. Uh, you know when your parents work would have a Christmas party for the children of employees and somebody dressed as Santa would give out toys that were clearly going <laughs> cheap somewhere. I'm fairly sure that's where I got them from. And I remember there was, because there were only about 12 figures in total the main thing that struck me is even at that age I thought, who wants a figure of Lawn Green? I couldn't figure that out. But also, there were things like the Yovion Warrior where you look at them and think, who's got that? Nobody I know has got that. But <laughs> Obviously, this stuff, you know, it was considered totally discardable at one point. And now, I mean, I don't even look 
for a Muffet the Dagget figure on eBay because oh, I can I imagine, did. you know, particularly because I imagine they're quite breakable as well, that they're probably going for a fortune now. I think it's about £25, even without the packet. Like you said, these things only came out for a brief while, possibly not in all toy shops. I'm not sure they would have got as far as Taunton toys. <laughs> <laughs> I, obviously, Taunton is the edge of the world as, as far as science fiction is concerned. Also, when you watch it, you're going, this is very, very bit of a misfire in terms of tone because, you know, the first episode is very dark. It is stuff about, you know, children die in the first story and stuff. And it's about these sort of intergalactic refugees in a war zone. And then within about 45 minutes, they've gone to other planet of the space casino. And it's, you know, it's women go-go dancing with their midge of showing and wearing spandex. And you go, what is this? Is, is this show an argument? Is this a show between one person who's going, it's going to be dark and serious. And another person going, no, it's going to be camp fun. And it never quite gets the tone. So you'd have an episode where the sort of opening storyline is that Starbuck is dating two women and then the episode will end while going, I'm afraid we couldn't save them. And it's like, what are you doing? You have no idea who your audience is, what your tone is. It's all over the place, which in a way is wonderful because you don't get TV programs have more thought put into or that sort of stuff doesn't escape anymore in the way that it used to. You know, it'd be one person's vision and that person would be slightly mad in what they wanted. They wanted everything at once. Well, I am firmly convinced Convinced, despite you know there's the whole idea that Battlestar Galactica was basically a rip-off of Star Wars and it was very much commissioned in slipstream and so on but I don't think despite there being all this merchandise it was made with merchandising in mind because if you look at the Star Wars equivalents you know particularly if you watch the brilliant the toys that made us on it on Netflix you know they had this stuff ready not quite out of the starting blocks so that famous thing about kids being given certificates for Christmas to say you'll get a Star Wars figure in the new year but they had plans for <laughs> You know, they weren't as elaborate figures, but they were the perfect size. They were well made in the sense that they were solidly constructed. I mean, it didn't look much like Mark Hamill, the Luke Skywalker figure, but it was what kids wanted. Whereas these are a bit more cumbersome, a bit more easily breakable. You look at them and you think, who thought any kid was going to want to toy that? Whereas you mentioned the Bounty Hunters and Empire Strikes Back. As weird as they look, you can see exactly why. At the design stage, somebody must have thought of a figure while they were making. Apparently, it's not actually called Forlom, but I call him Forlom. You know, all of them... They've got a real kind of toy selling point look. And I don't think, apart from the Cylons, anything about Star Galactica really did. They do have aliens in it, but... They're repulsive, mostly. (laughs) They're repulsive, and it will be an exotic dancer with three eyes or something. You're going, that's not really erotic, that's just disturbing and frightening and you wouldn't want an action figure of it you know it's it isn't like what you would do now which is you you would do a different monster in every episode and just so you had a different toy to sell i mean battlestar galactica they sort of they have that blake seven thing of going should this be a show without aliens would that work better i mean i think that's what they did when they brought it back isn't it they didn't have aliens in it at all they just sort of had the cylons and stuff is this universe should be dark and gritty and about politics and sort of refugees or terrorists or whatever but then you just want to have aliens as well and somehow that doesn't fit because when you have aliens very very soon you're going to have an alien god that's playing the harpsichord and making everyone do little dances and then the week after that you're going to have the the weird virus that makes everyone want to have sex with each other and then you're going to be ending up on the planet where the aliens want to watch humans having sex because these things always (laughs) this is what i was trying to do with dick nixon these sort of plots just turn up in every show 
the other one is one of the things I love is that in any science fiction show, it's impossible for someone to say we have a lot to talk about. It's we have much to discuss. No one would ever say that in real life. No one would ever meet someone and say, I see you've formed quite a welcoming committee. These things are meaningless, but they fill these things. And I mean, one of the things I find, because I write Doctor Who things for Big Finish, is in when I write a first draft, I tend to accidentally do this a lot. All these sort of terrible sort of lines. I wrote one today where someone goes, Captain, it was an act of necessity. We had to do it. And it's going, how has anyone ever used the phrase an act of necessity before? That's just like something that a computer translation program would throw up. But when you're in science fiction mode, you find yourself writing these bizarre, bizarre things and going, oh, with Dick Dixon, I've embraced that. I'm actually going, I'm pushing in the other direction to go further in that. And no point can someone say it's a force field. They have to say it's some kind of force field of some kind. <laughs> They're using some sort of energy weapon. They're using an energy weapon. <laughs> Why? Once you realise these sort of ticks that science fiction has, it becomes sort of hysterical and hypnotic. Oh, I've watched these shows too much, haven't I? I've gone mad. Well, I think we're going to find plenty more of that in your next choice. The clip they're going to use to introduce it, you might think you recognise it, but you might be very, very slightly wrong. <laughs> You're probably saying, well, I remember that. That's the opening of Book Rogers in the 25th Century. Not quite. It's the opening from season two of Book Rogers in the 25th Century. Admittedly, you would have to be very obsessive to notice that. But, Johnny, we're going to talk about this and I think we might regret it. Book Rogers is, like a lot of these shows, a game of two halves. Whenever a science fiction series gets a second series, they always get in a different executive producer. Someone else comes in and they go... I can see what you're doing, but let's make it more for the kids. It's never, let's make it darker. Nowadays, it'd be, let's make it darker. You know, Then it's always, let's make it more for the kids. And you wonder what kids they knew, because it never quite works out like that. Buckwood is already pretty much for the kids. The child from different strokes would turn up as a sort of alien oh, warlord. It was yes, already... yeah, Gary Coleman, I forgot. But they made a the big yeah. thing about that when he was in it, yeah. In series two of this, they've gone, this is far too serious. We've only got one stupid robot. We need a second stupid robot. I think it's actually called Crichton. But before Red Dwarf doing the same joke of going it's a snobbish robot butler what americans think english people sound like and act like so you've got another stupid robot you've got mr hawk who is, is an alien from the eagle planet who's just a, a guy with a sort of a i don't know sort of a pigeon head on basically but then what i love so much is wilfred hyde white who they get in as this scientist so it's all very futuristic and a futurist spaceship and stuff and then wilfred hyde white is standing in the middle of it in his cardigan, in his slippers. And again, they couldn't get him into the outfit. He's just going, oh, no, I, I love these science fiction things. But I'm, I'm not putting on the costume. Maybe in the future, people wear cardigans and slacks, you know, maybe they do. <laughs> it's just in the middle of this, this sort of madness of going, you've got one actor who is not playing futuristic. He is just acting like he's just wandered in off from the car park. And it's all he's reading his lines off cue cards. And he's having absolutely a whale of a time just taking the piss. And everyone else is trying 
trying to play it straight around him, while this actor in the middle is just being totally indulgent. That's the genius of series two. That it, what it is, it's a sitcom that doesn't know it's a sitcom because it has all the ingredients for a sitcom. I mean, it has a robot called Crichton. That's that should be a tale, and it's got Wilfred Hyde as a dotty old scientist, but it isn't played for laugh. It doesn't have comic structure. I watch it and I'm laughing my head off. I'm just going, just imagine how much fun it would be if it actually had jokes in it as well, rather than just things I'm laughing at. I don't know if it, camp is the right word, really, because camp would suggest they knew what they were doing in some way, that it was deliberate in some way. Well, I think it's, this is just what happens when you let costume designers and set designers do what they like, and it just becomes this sort of glitzy, sort of randomly plotted totally tonally all over the place sort of showcase of whatever people thought of that morning really. well it is quite a sharp change between the seasons to the extent that well the first thing to say is that particularly in the uk book rogers in the 25th century the first series was absolutely massive i mean i remember how big it was it was one of the few things that itv tried to take away the doctor who audience with that nearly succeeded it was absolutely massive there was one huge bit of merchandise which we'll come back to in the minute because i think we both had that there was a tv times feature on the fact that gary coleman was in an episode it was absolutely huge but i don't remember whether the second series was actually shown by itv or not because i remember watching it later in the decade on def 2 on bbc2 which again i'll come back to it's just so so different apparently the producers they brought in didn't have any form in sci-fi they just done westerns and it kind of <laughs> becomes a western they're not defending the earth anymore which you know was the big attraction when you're a kid they're going out seeking out new civilizations now that's a bit familiar yeah it is a total rip-off of star trek but without any of the sensible parts of star trek but also they got rid of some key characters the main ones being dr theophilus which for anyone who doesn't know that's a talking disc round twicky's neck they wrote that out princess ardala as well was written out you know i would have been very disappointed by that as a kid let's just say that but it only got to your mileage may vary it's either 11 episodes or 13 if you count the double length episodes as two and which part Gil Gerard, TV's Book Rogers, said, I'm off, I've had enough of this, you've ruined it. The weird thing is that, like I say, it was huge at the time, because I certainly had the corgi Book Rogers Starfighter, although I had the small one. Did you have the large one or the small one? I always thought of the large corgi toys as like an unworldly extravagance that the likes of me could never have. It was the small one. It was all part of a sort of a Star Wars Christmas present, so it was just me going, oh, that's probably been Star Wars for two minutes. So I just assumed it was a Star Wars thing. So for years, until eventually I saw a clip of Backwaters going, oh, that's that's the thing that's where it's from but that was brilliant it had those retractable yellow wings and also it had the producer's name on the bottom of it (laughs) which i was really loved you know they were great they were fantastic toys and they show how big it was but like i say in the late 80s it was repeated in the def 2 strand on bbc2 they were still treating repeats in that slot as a bit kind of kitschy you know mission impossible was on and so on then they started to get good figures and they started to buy the new stuff in like star trek next generation but even by then you know it's like what seven eight years later book rogers in the 25th century unfortunately had a built-in sell-by date because of the very of its time designs but also the fact that the opening titles I remember people laughing about this when it was repeated identifying as coming from 1980 and you know mm. when you're watching that in 1987 it's fine when you watch it in 1980 or even 1979 when it started but it's laughable by then. The interesting thing is that since then, its stock has never really recovered. I mean, I was astonished at how short the Wikipedia page for it is. 
And I was quite astonished by that. I thought it would at least have its fans, but it doesn't seem to. I mean, it does have, I think, very, very much of its time, which used to be sort of found on. I think it's actually one of the most wonderful things about any TV show, that if you can watch it and go, that is of a moment, that captures a moment. And Buckwater Series 2 is very much the sort of Bee Gees end of disco, you know, the, when disco's sort of already sort of beginning to get a bit too much. So I, I think it got tarred by that brush. I think people were, were just associating it with a particular sort of, that particular fashion which was very very in and then almost you know as the clock chimed making it 1981 suddenly was nobody likes this this is utterly awful and uh, you know ITV just for some reason I don't know why they dropped it I think they probably just realised it wasn't going to be a third series and so they're going what we're going to be showing is a show that's now been axed which is always a downer whenever you're bought in the shows I think by then they'd realised that they were onto a loser and possibly <laughs> the other thing is they might have watched it <laughs> and go what the what the hell is this what have they done what have they done to it who is the guy in the middle of the control room in a cardigan I think part of it was they'd they watched it okay I'm wondering if anyone watched your next choice before release and if they immediately just put their head in their hands and said never again because I didn't see this until relatively recently I'm still baffled by it I'm hoping you can maybe maybe see it in a different light anyway here's the trailer for it and we'll explain what it is in a minute welcome to a universe of robots with the power to perform one wonders and men with the will to destroy worlds of interstellar blackmail and intergalactic heroism beyond the earth beyond the moon adventure beyond your wildest imagination hg wells the shape of things to come rated pg okay that's a trailer for hg wells is the shape of things to come a 1979 canadian movie which i'm not really able to describe this johnny will you do the others we all know hg wells the shape of things to come the tale of earth over the next hundred years where he collectively predicted the war in the air and the rise of nuclear weapons and eventually they eventually build a spaceship which goes to the moon and so on well this film has absolutely nothing to do with that. <laughs> it even has hg wells in the title as though to draw attention to the fact that it has nothing to do with H.G. Wells at all. It is yet another Star Wars knockoff, as it were. You can sort of draw a dotted line of Star Wars knockoffs going, you've got Star Wars, and then you've got a Battle Beyond the Stars, which is pretty good. You go to Star Crash, which is a bit, oh dear. And then you get to The Shape of Things to Come, which is just the, what the hell are they doing here? Because <laughs> it's this sort of cargo cult version of Star Wars of going, it needs the girl, it needs the villain, it needs the spaceships, and it needs the cute robots. It has all the, the hallmarks of a film where they've started making it when they haven't got a script and they just start filming and start shooting and going, okay, we've got a Jeep. We've got kids. They can be rebels. No, they can be, they can be survivors of a robot war. And we've got robots. And it's like, you haven't got robots. But you've got people walking around with, with, they're the least movable robots in science fiction. They've got these sort of little claws, like Doctor Who's Crotons, if you remember them. And they are even less effective than the Crotons. So they just sort of waddle about until someone sort of pushes one and they just topple over. And they are supposed to be, the, they are the equivalent of the Star Wars stormtroopers in this. These sort of waddling sort of biscuit tins. The other thing is you watch it and going, maybe it has a good story. You know, maybe there's something going on here. But literally nothing in it makes any sense at all. They're on a rescue mission and this guy's planning to take over the Earth with robots. And then the spaceship runs out of fuel and then goes, oh, we need to go back to Earth to find some fuel. And then they meet the children who are survivors of the robot wars. Then I think presumably they get some fuel. The spaceship is sucked into a wormhole 
which just so happens to take them to the planet where the villain lives. And the villain is conducting experiments. He shows how he's used a sort of a goldfish bowl type thing on his head to control the mining robots and make them into villainous robots. Then there's a fight. Then he's knocked over. And for some reason, that causes his whole base to explode. (laughs) The end. Imagine if you were very, very, very drunk and you watched Flash Gordon, but you were sort of skipping backwards and forwards for the film. So it's all sort of out of order because that's what it's like. So I think what it's really good at, if you're a Star Wars fan, you can watch this film and you can go, ah, this is what Star Wars looks like to other people. This is the Star Wars, what Star Wars is to normal people. This is utter science fiction madness. Um, unworldly robots, lovely, some brilliant special effects of models and stuff, some terrible stuff, obviously. I haven't mentioned the main, one of the great things about it. It has Barry Morrison. It does. Again, from Space 1999, which, as you recall, in which he plays a scientist on a moon base. Whereas in this film, he plays a scientist on a moon base. <laughs> you know, you've gone, who can we get who can do that? And you sort of see him and, he, and you just see in his eyes going, where is my career going? I thought I got off that fucking moon base. Oh, I'm going to be on moon bases from now on. You can see it in his eyes. He's just he's just so depressed. Well, it's also got Jack Palance and also Anne-Marie Martin, who's probably best known either for Prom Night, the early slasher film, or Sledgehammer, that American sitcom that was on an ITV in the middle of the night in the late 80s. I adored Sledgehammer. I adored it so much because I was at university and it'd be on in the common room. And you, you do, every, every week you do the Sledgehammer, game where people would watch it down and watch it and then people hadn't seen it before and how long it would take them for realize that it was a comedy <laughs> because you go this is slightly insane again it's a big influence on dick dixon because it is that idea of taking a tv format and just taking it an extra step further making it slightly it was already on the edge of ridiculous and you were just pushing it giving a little nudge over the brink into becoming a comedy well, speaking of things that are on the verge of ridiculous, the thing about H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come is it kind of reminds me of if ITC had decided to make a sci-fi film. Well, I know they made Stainless Steel and Star Spies, but that's beside the point. But, you know, when in their later days, when they'd lost the plot and they just couldn't make anything good or coherent or even, despite having high production values, looked that impressive or expensive or even engaging. This feels a bit like that. It's like it's got that big, empty, echoey feel where you've got no sense of anything going on beyond the people that are actually on the set at that point. It's like as if in an episode of The Professionals, they chase somebody into the Docklands, you know, as the Docklands were there with nobody else around and suddenly being put in spacesuits. It's very old. It has all the bits from science fiction films in it, but they don't join together in any sort of way. And you're just sort of looking at going, they've got enough sort of people in it. They were sort of famous enough to sort of to get it into the cinemas. They've got robots, they've got spaceships. So they've got a poster and they can sell it into the cinemas and then take the money and run. You know, it's it's we've got something we can sell and people go and see. But we're not actually going to making the film as a sort of an afterthought to the whole sort of process. It's an obligation of going, we just need to somehow string out the footage to like 79 minutes or whatever. And it also has that weird sort of science fiction trap that these things fall into of there's nothing dramatic in it. There are no confrontations. The most dramatic thing in it is when the villain uses his mind control helmet and he sort of overpowers Barry Morse and Barry Morse has to act this fit and you're just sort of looking at it going and it just goes on. It goes on to about, I think, I don't know, 90 seconds of seeing Barry Morse having this sort of epileptic fit and he's going, he's not dying. He's just, well, his career's dying but he, we're watching him going and it just goes on and on and on and it's going, 
But why is this? This is because they're using every second of footage they've got. They've got nothing else. They're using every take they've got just to cobble together this sort of film. Well, that's kind of underlined by how would you say about George McCowan, the director? His main credits were on shows like Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, SWAT, Heart to Heart. So obviously, you know, he's the obvious choice for a sci-fi film, isn't he? He went on from this to do no other films as far as I can tell. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And he did the fourth and final Magnificent Seven film, The Magnificent Seven Fight. So I think it's um, entertaining, but like I said, I think it gives you an insight into what science fiction really looks like to normal people. It does have a sort of charm to it. If you've gone down the road of Battle Beyond the Stars and Starcash, you have to finish the trilogy where it is all the trappings and none of the content. It's just a glorious sort of cynical mess. Okay, well, moving on to your next choice now, which is a record where, I mean, you might think that later in this decade, everything Stockache and the Waterman did was all done by computer, but get a load of this. It has to be stressed. They wouldn't have it any other way. Johnny, I'm not that familiar with this. What's the story behind it? Data is my favourite band that no one else has ever heard of. Because obviously they had no hit. No, they have one single that got to number 80, apparently. Yeah, they were not huge. What they are is there's a band in the 70s called Sailor, which I think everyone knows because they had hits with Girls, Girls, Girls and Glass of Champagne. Data is what the lead singer of Sailor did next. A guy called George Kajanus, I think his name is. So he gets together with a couple of female singers and he goes, what shall I do after Sailor? I am going to be a synth pop band. There's bits of things like OMD in there and Human League and Gary Newman and even Yazoo later on. But what they seem to have done is to watch the not the nine o'clock news clip <laughs> of Lufthansa Terminal doing nice video shame about the song and gone, that's going to be our career. That's why I love them because Fallout is an extraordinary thing where you're just going, this is a song about nuclear war. And it's just really, really I just find it really funny because it's just so doomy, so doomy. But it's such a little that sort of catchy, jaunty tune that you can imagine Sailor doing. And all their songs are like this. I mean, I used to work for a label called Mute Records, and one of the first things they put out was this single called Warm Leatherette and TVOD by Daniel Miller, who called himself The Normal. TVOD is very, very similar to Data because it's about, I'm sitting watching TV, the wire goes into my veins, I'm watching TV, I'm addicted to TV. And you go, this is supposed to be serious. This is supposed to be someone doing J.G. Ballard, the musical. But you're just going, this is so silly. This is so funny. The more serious they be, the more meaningful they are the more apocalyptic and data have about eight songs all about the apocalypse all of which are really catchy really jaunty and really trying to be doom laden but they're sort of they're adorable their third album which is wonderful is not even available on cd so that's how obscure they are well apparently they 
were on major record labels, which I was surprised by. But there's two big observations I want to make, which is the other two members, Frankie and Phil Bolter, were actually the daughters of John Bolter from the Black and White Minstrels, which is a bit of an inconvenient fact. <laughs> but also, the, I assumed when I saw the name, I did wonder initially if Fallout was a song about the final episode of The Prisoner. That's how my mind works. I didn't immediately think early 80s nuclear paranoia. I thought Patrick McGowan. One of their songs mentions Doomwatch, which is extraordinary. I think there's a lot of science fiction appreciation going on there that they remember this 1970s show. Yeah, but it's all very much in that sort of 79-1980 thing of songs about nuclear war breaking out. You know, things like Breathing by Kate Bush and things and Cars by Gary Newman and stuff, where it's all nuclear war is going to break out. We're all going to live in a J.G. Ballard novel of concrete and under passes and foraging in the concrete and so on but again it has that wonderful thing of it's all a bit too late they're doing this in like 1983 1984 it's like everyone's moved on everyone's like into duran duran and spandau ballet now you know has that sort of misfortunate quality of going you are doing the best possible records from 1979 and they're not coming out in 1979 when people would actually like them and also they were so serious in their approach and they look so serious and so on that i've not gone to check this but i'm convinced they will have shown up a couple of years later in one of those you know smash hits used to do features called things like look at the state of this lot where they have photos of bands from a couple of years previously like people like the king of luxembourg and catholic girls were always in there and video nasties and so on. they probably had data and <laughs> described them as blee gusting or something <laughs> yeah when you're that wedded to what isn't even the style of the times it's an advancement on the style of the times and they were slightly out of time as well it ages so rapidly and so badly yeah because they wear these sort of gray overalls was their look of this sort of dystopian fashion of functionality which again was sort of adopted years later by a band called Client which did the same sort of thing the same sort of dystopian sort of look but they made it work for them and also the video for Fallout which as far as I can tell it shows them walking around the campus for Warwick University it's just underpasses and bleak concrete and going this is what the future is going to look like it's all going to look like a Midlands University and going we are just going to use all the shittiest video effects everything so the sky is going to turn red some of them went in slow motion doing the strobe effect I don't think it's supposed to be funny but it is it is I think they're an underrated band but that's because I like them but I quite like them being my band that no one else likes so maybe I should keep them a secret their one other sort of claim to fame is that one of their pieces of music was used as a theme tune for a short film called Towers of Babel which you can find on the internet and it's Brian Pringle is a lead and he's just sort of wandering around this sort of industrial sort of concrete council housing tower blocks and things. Brian Pringle, you know, from, from Last of the Sun of Wine. Someone has basically gone, we'll get Brian Pringle, Sheila Stiefel and Anna Quayle to do this sort of J.G. Ballard storyline. Now, be fair, Sheila Stiefel was young crone in Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. So she was used to that kind of landscape. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a- Okay, we're well moving on to your last choice now, which I really can't wait for. I've been looking forward to this for the whole show. There's not really a clip I can use as such, or is there? Come on, come on, what are you waiting for, Christmas? This is it then, last one. Ah, thank goodness for WH Smith. You can buy all your presents in one shop. What? What? <laughs> Pens, calculators, books. Yes, yes. <laughs> Records, cameras, toys, gift vouchers. WH Smith. It's a great place for gifts. <gasps> what? Smoke. No, thanks. I've given it up. WH Smith. It's a great place for gifts. OK, 
okay, that's an advert for Christmas at WH Smith's in 1979. And I'm wondering if this was the Christmas when you got this book. Johnny, what was Space Wars Fact and Fiction? Space Wars Fact and Fiction is what you get when your parents want to give you a second Doctor Who annual. <laughs> I think it was a WH Smith's exclusive. It was, it yes. And it's sort of, in a way, amazing. It has the most gorgeous cover. An extraordinarily wonderful red spaceship flying through the galaxies. And some of the artwork in it is absolutely amazing. Astonishing artwork. A lot of it, you get the impression that it was commissioned for something else. You know, it was done for look and read or some sort of part work because it also has it's not really a comic strip in it, it has a sort of a picture strip in it. Space Cadet, which is a reprint of a comic strip from a magazine called Ranger, which I've, I've never barely, heard I've, of. That. <laughs> I've never heard of it. It's a sort of an eagle version. So this annual comes out in 1981 and it's got this comic strip from around 1964, 1965. In it. So it's before moon landings and stuff. So you're sort of sitting down on Christmas Day, you know, you, you got your Star Wars toys and you got your, your Doctor Who target books, or whatever. And you look at this and you're going to reading this, this sort of comic strip, which appears to come from the Victorian era. It's so old. It doesn't even have speech bubbles. It's that very sort of stuff the eagle did where it goes, it's a serious comic strip where we're just going to do writing and a picture writing and a picture so that's kind of weird and but it also has all the annual stuff in it that you expect like sort of short stories again you sort of suspect they were written for something else articles about you know the planet venus fact and fiction which is full of stuff which i now in my head i believe is all fact <laughs> going yes i think we have sent algae to venus to into oxygen that would definitely work so it's, it's like the sort of nonsense you get in doctor who annuals and stuff but even more of it but it's also has some proper really good science articles of going if we were to have a space station you need to to sort of rotate for gravity it would need plants to produce oxygen stuff so for i've been seven or eight i don't know when it came out i cherished it i was going this is a really wonderful book and also because it was incredibly long you know dr who would have about 40 pages i think this went on for like 80 pages it was thick you know it had four space cadet stories in it but of course now i go i wonder how much that costs on ebay <laughs> it's about a hundred pounds i noticed <laughs> i know why didn't i keep my copy you know that it must all be people like me going that was actually a really good book it had really good sort of science articles in it it was very much sort of capitalizing on the sort of star wars craze where it was all i think bits taken from whatever sort of archives they had you know the publishers had bought these properties like and look and read and stuff and gone okay here's an article from look and read about what the moon landing might be like in the future and we'll put that in a book from 1980 well it's the perfect example of i mean i know loads of people that had this i'm fairly sure i did myself because it's an easy thing like you say for parents to get when you know it's limited what space stuff you can actually get at christmas time in those days but it is a perfect example of somebody saying this star wars thing is quite big We've got no creative interest in it. What have we got lying around that we can sell? Slap that all together, job done. But like you say, it actually really works because it's so diverse and so long. And there's that amazing cover where there's four things I love about it. One, the fact that it's called Space Wars Fact and Fiction. <laughs> it's like the Star Bar almost having the logo like the Star Wars logo. It's that kind of just about getting away with riding on the coattails. There's a fact that it's very specifically called Space Wars Fact and Fiction, which is indicating it includes facts about space wars what facts are they please 
there's that amazing spaceship, like you say, it's like a cross between the Hawks from Space 1999 and a bit snapped off the trial ship from Doctor Who in the Trial of a Time Lord. But there's also there's a little flash at the bottom saying featuring Space Cadet, where he's drawn differently. They've obviously just copied the Green Cross code man slightly differently for it. But it's presented <laughs> as though you're supposed to know who he is and think, oh, it's got Space Cadet. I can't wait. It's this sort of is a mixture of just what they, whatever they had around. It's all pretty much good stuff. I mean, I'm looking at people who put scans online of the artwork for Space Cadet, and it is kind of mind-bending stuff, but it is also that sort of, everything's got that sort of old-fashioned design where they still think sort of spaceships are going to be sort of using sort of nuts and bolts, as it were, and everything's got a sort of 60s fridge design where everything's got a sort of curved edges and stuff. It's sort of really odd. But there's also this amazingly dramatic artwork, which is utterly beautiful. And to be fair, it's got things like the Space Shuttle in it and stuff, so it's going, the Space Shuttle will come out soon. I don't think the Space Shuttle had launched by that point, so it was still in the future. And it will launch, you know, it will build an international space station and it will build a telescope that can see further than any telescope seen before. It did have stuff that was actually sort of not just correct, but also exciting. When you're a kid, you go, this is in my future. You sort of, I think you should cherish the ones they got right. You know, they did get a lot right, and it's not over yet. We st- the moon bases still might happen. If Elon Musk decides he's got too much money, <laughs> I think that's what you want as a kid. You want to know that your future is going to be great. As a parent now, I worry, you know, that kids are growing up these days being told, oh, you know, the future's because of, you know, global warming and climate change and stuff. But maybe I wasn't really paying attention then, because in 1980, we're supposed to be sort of terrified of nuclear war. But for me, it was, I was just really, really excited by the future. I was going, it's going to be wonderful. Maybe that's what Dick Nixon is about, is just what it was like to be someone from the 1970s. And you've, you've found the future you were promised, what we wanted it to be, what we were told it was going to be like, rather than the one we're in, which is, you know, just like a slightly sort of rubbish version of 1972 all the time. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the really great thing about this book and why it's surprising it works so well is it's all the bits that, like you've already alluded to, you felt palmed off with in other annuals. Like the way, there's that Doctor Who annual with that page where John Pertwee is describing future medical miracles, including a change in the formulation of fillings and the fact that doctors, <laughs> will, doctors will be able to record prescription details onto audio tape and give it to people. But this is all those bits just put together and they work. They work like you say, in a really positive way, because it's all on topic. And if you want to read all of that, it really works. The only sort of thing it's missing is anything to do with Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have, you know... No, it's Space um, Wars, it, though. That's the it, thing. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't have any, it doesn't have any Space Wars in it. It doesn't have <laughs> spaceships fighting each other because, you know, the Space Cadet Adventures are all sort of set on Earth, really. It doesn't have Luke Skywalker. It doesn't have Millennium Falcon. It doesn't have any of the stuff from Buck Rogers. Or you look at the cover and you go, this is about Star Wars. And in the end, you go, oh, this is like the sort of book they would give out in schools. <laughs> this is a bit schoolish, you know. It's, it does have that thing of going, this is actually covertly educated. I think in a way of marketing, that's a really good idea. Going, parents, your children will read this and they'll be educated about space and they won't even realise it. Well, there's just one thing left for me to ask, which is, Johnny, if you were putting together the brilliant book of disco sci-fi, what extraneous off-topic feature would you put in it? Most of these shows, like Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica, they have these scenes set in futuristic sort of discotheques. They've obviously given us some thought of going, what will be the future of dancing? Where is the Odyssey of Funk going to lead us? And so they've got these sort of, I don't know, they're not fiber optic ships. They're the sort of the cheap versions of fiber optics in the 70s where it's just sort of um, fairy lights along a translucent sort of rope. And they're going, oh, I think they'll do this sort of dance where they're lassoing each other and then they're sort of doing a sort of a sexy sort of tangling thing. And you go, this is this is never going to happen. We will never do that until you see a 
the video for Rachel Stevens' Sweet Dream by Elliot, and yeah, that they predicted the future there. They got it absolutely right. Well, I would not object to the brilliant book of disco sci-fi having the feature of Rachel Stevens in it. Johnny, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Telly by Tim Worthington. From fish to fun to ski boy, the ultimate guide to the TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.org.